What up, world? It's your past first point guard and Blazer beat writer Mike Richmond. You're listening to another episode of Lockdown Blazers, part of the Lockdown Podcast Network, available wherever you get podcasts. Today's episode is a special mailbag Monday. I solicit questions on Twitter. You send them to me at Mike G. Rich. I answer them on Monday nights, and you get to listen on Tuesdays. We would call it Mailbag Tuesdays, but it doesn't sound as good. So that's what we're going to do. Three segments of your questions. Like I said, if you want to get involved, just shoot me a a Blazer-related, NBA-related question whenever you're thinking of it on Twitter, at Mike G. Rich, or watch the skies early Monday morning, West Coast time, when I put out the call for questions. I'll solicit questions there. Respond to that tweet. You'll get in the show. I think I'm going to be 100% this week. Everyone who asked a question is going to get in the show. So let's do it. Three full segments of your questions. Mailbag Mondays. First one comes from David Knopp, at KnoppDA on Twitter, who asks, How do you like the look of the three-guard lineup with Dame, CJ, and Ant? Or as the kids like to call it, the three-headed snake lineup. David, I don't know who these kids are. I've never heard anyone call that. Maybe your kids, perhaps? How do I like that look? Uh, I think it's super intriguing. Uh, but when the, before the season started, I asked Terry Stotts specifically whether he thought he would get to that lineup, whether he would play those three guys together. Just sort of based on the makeup of this team, it seems like trying that trio out had to be part of the plan. And he told me that he didn't really foresee it. This was before game one of the regular season. Uh, he didn't really foresee it because if Ant was on the court, that meant, with Damon CJ, that meant that either Rodney Hood or Kent Bazemore wasn't in the game, and that he liked both those guys, particularly what they offered defensively comparatively to Damon CJ, so he wasn't super excited about um, playing Ant next to those two guys. But we've seen injuries, uh, Rodney Hood with the back spasms, uh, Zach Collins' injury makes Rodney Hood have to move up a spot, just all, all types of things up and down the roster. So I've liked the way it's looked. And that group has played in seven games already. Seven out of the ten we've seen Dame, CJ, and Ant all get a chance. The three-headed snake. That's a terrible name. I'm not going to roll with that, David. Um, it's been pretty good. And we last night against the Hawks, Terry Stotts tried it a little bit, or Sunday night against the Hawks, Terry Stotts tried it a little bit, and Anthony Simons went off. He was cooking next to Damon CJ. He had a huge, huge stretch. But then when Trey Young came back in the game, Terry Stotts took Ant out of the lineup and closed the game with Kent Bazemore, and he did that for defensive reasons. Now, at the time, I thought, the Blazers aren't playing particularly good defense. Who cares? They need the offense. But the numbers kind of back up what Terry thinks. Uh, In seven games across 57 minutes, that trio on the court together has a 128 offensive rating, would be far and away the best offense in the league if those three play together. Also, has a 110 defensive rating. Would be near the bottom in, in defenses in the league. I don't think that trio can really guard a lot of guys. I think they can really score, and I think in spots, particularly when pl- the other team does not have large wings or really skilled offensive perimeter guys, you can use it. Because I think that lineup can cook, and I like that trio together. I want to see more of it. All right, next question it comes from Bruce Clues at Bruce underscore Clues on Twitter. Bruce asks, I've seen a new look run a few times where Ant, playing the three, sets a screen for Dame, but each time that play has been blown up or Dame didn't take the screen. Is this just a straight pick-and-pop action or something more complex? So I want to touch on this in the sort of three-guard lineup thing. I think that is more of 
Anthony Simons coming to set a screen on the ball to force a switch. So whoever is guarding him is a weaker defender, and he just wants to come up there and give Dame a chance to switch, and Dame either rejects it or not. They don't really run straight pick-and-pops little to little very often. Usually when they run those screens, it is to force a quick switch or to or they'll run it as a, like a quick dribble handoff at the top of the key. But if you're seeing Anthony Simons come up and set a screen, that's just trying to get the defense to take a soft switch and put a weaker defender on the ball. Okay, next question comes from Jake Smith at JakeSmy19 on Twitter. JakeSme19 on Twitter. Jake asks, Where do you think Nazir Little fits into the Blazers' short-term plans? Will he be in the rotation every night now due to injury or sporadically? If Rodney Hood is hurt, Nazir Little is going to play limited minutes. They need another guy on the wing. They're trying not to... They're already playing Damon CJ way too many minutes, and they're trying to flatten that out a little bit in the first half, stretch that out a little bit in the first half, I should say, get those guys some rest, play groups with... Play more Gary Trent Jr., play more uh, Nazir Little, and let Anthony Simons and, and the the bench crew kind of have a four- or five-minute run, maybe like a three- to five-minute run is more accurate. But if, but if Rodney Hood's back, Nazir Little's not going to play. Uh, if you think that them playing, uh, like, if you want rookies to play for development reasons, I think the Blazers just generally disagree with you. They believe guys can develop behind the scenes and be thrown into the fire later in their careers and be ready without on court ex- as much on-court experience. In fact, before the Hawks game, Terry Stotts, when a reporter asked if it was you know good minutes to get the, the young guys like Gary Trent Jr. and Azir Little out there, he kind of laughed and said, I don't know if eight minutes on the court will really change their trajectory of their careers. And I think he's right. All right, next question comes from Jared Cowley at Jared Cowley on Twitter, who asks, once Rodney Hood is healthy again, back spasms suck, he notes, who do you think is a better fit in the Blazers' starting lineup at small forward, Hood or Kent Bazemore? I think it's Rodney Hood because I think you need Kent Bazemore's ability to dribble. He's a better dribbler and playmaker with that second unit. I think you just need more kind of shot creation type stuff on the second unit. Rodney Hood can create for himself. He can go get individual offense as a guy off the bench. He's not a bad fit in that role. But in terms of another guy who can initiate, another guy who can let Anthony Simons play off the ball, which the Blazers seem to prioritize a little bit, or let CJ have a turn to like stay in point guard or stay in shooting guard mode and not shift to point guard. I think that's better with Bazemore there. That said, if the Blazers want to play Rodney Hood more at four, it might make sense to bring him off the bench and let him play three four off the bench. He can still play more minutes than Mario Hazonia, but it might be a way to, to stagger him a little bit. But I I kind of like Hood still as uh, in that starting group. I think having the size at six nine and uh, keeping Bazemore's ball handling playmaking ability on the bench is a better fit for right now this next question comes from matthew at reverend romulus who asks it seems like many of the players are fitting into your worst case scenarios that's in quotes because before the season i did a player capsule for each player um, where i broke down their best case and worst case scenarios for the season it's probably the best episodes i've done on this podcast i'll just toot my own horn real quick um so if you haven't listened to them they are still I guess, relevant, you can uh, you can go back, just look for season outlook in each player's name. But as Matthew notes, many of the guys who I outlined what their worst case or best case scenario would be are moving towards their worst case scenarios, at least for the first 10 games. And Reverend, Reverend Romulus wonders, of the players that aren't currently living up to the expectations, who is most likely to get out of their funk and whose bad play is most likely here to stay? Here are my two choices. I think... I think 
Kent Bazemore is most likely to get out of his funk. He is still doing positive things, even though he can't shoot. And at some point, he's going to, you think he's going to start making shots. He's bricked like seemingly a thousand mid range pull ups, but he did make a few standstill three pointers against the Hawks. And I do think he can become a useful spot up shooter. I think that will, will come around and uh, he'll, he'll become at least an okay spot-up shooter. And with that said, his baseline of defensive activity makes him useful enough that I think he can trend out of that worst case and, and move the needle towards best-case scenarios. Who's going to stay there? This is sad, but I kind of think it's Mario Hazonia. I just don't think he's going to get it together and become a player who knows how to score in the half court. He still kind of makes up his mind sometimes at about the hash mark, two steps outside the three-point line, and says, I'm going to go to the rim no matter what, and just charges headlong into the paint against three guys. And he's usually strong enough to get a shot off, but they're just wild shots. Uh, He's not a great jump shooter and never has been in his career. That hasn't changed. He has some weird decision-making on offense, like posting up at 19 feet and taking a fall away after a couple jab steps. Maybe he'll come around, but for me, he hasn't yet. And I'm worried that Mario Zonia kind of is who he is. And maybe he'll get a little bit better, but I don't know. I, I think we, we've we kind of seen what he brings. Even if he shoots a little bit better, he's who he is. That said, Mario Zonia has been a little bit better on defense than I would have guessed. I should give him credit for that. All right, second segment, we're doing more questions. Before we do that, I want to tell you guys all about Audible. Audible has the world's largest selection of audiobooks and audio entertainment, including Audible Originals. Audible Originals are stories created exclusively for audio, including documentaries, exclusive audiobooks, and scripted shows that you can't hear anywhere else. Audible keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. You'll find more stories when you listen with Audible and always be part of the conversation. With the convenient Audible app, you can listen anytime, anywhere, and on any device. Mobile, Alexa-enabled Bluetooth, and more. Listen at the gym, while shopping, in the car, while traveling. Anytime you can't read, you can listen with Audible. Audible members get more than ever before. Every month, you can choose one audiobook regardless of price, as well as two Audible originals from a fresh selection. Members stay motivated and inspired with unlimited access to exclusive guided fitness and meditation programs. Sign up for free for updates from the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and Washington Post delivered daily to the app. Audible members can also easily exchange any title they don't love at any time. And members keep their library of listens forever, even if they cancel. So, you can start a 30-day trial and choose one audiobook plus two Audible originals absolutely free. Here's how you do it. Visit audible.com slash LockedOnNBA. That's audible.com slash LockedOnNBA. You want to listen to the Great Blazer book, Breaks of the Game by David Halberstam? They got that on Audible? Load it up. Put it on your app. You can listen to it again. And remember, brighter days of Blazerland. So go to audible.com slash locked on NBA or text locked on NBA to 500 500 and get started today. Okay, still Mailbag Monday. We're still hitting your questions. Let's keep it moving. This next one comes from Sir Wheezy at Wheezy Sir on Twitter, who asks, if the Blazers can manage to tread water and remain around 500, does the timeline change or stay the same? Or when can we expect to see a trade, namely Whiteside? Are we still looking at the trade deadline or maybe December when more pieces come on the board? 
Okay, a lot of people have been pointing to December 15th, myself included, for when the Blazers will maybe make a roster move. Because it's, it's kind of clear that they're going to, right? Like, they have significant holes on the roster, they have some movable parts, they have their first-round picks, and they have their franchise player in his prime who talked about winning championships in August. They're going to try to get better in the short term. For, if nothing else, just to appease Damian Lillard. But I don't think December 15th, that, that thing I've pointed to, I don't think like December 15th at 3 p.m. or whatever when the deadline is, December 16th, that there's going to be some massive trade from the Blazers. I kind of think December 15th is when the more aggressive trades talks start to start. Like they that's when they really begin. Obviously, GMs are talking now. Uh, like trades don't just happen like, 2k style where you hit like find a trade button and then you then you shop around trade players and there's no there's no like literal trade block where you post like Hassan Whiteside's face and the NBA GM's call you're just constantly on the phone front offices are constantly on the phone with each other hey what are you trying to get oh you need more offense in your second unit oh you need better rebounders and then you kind of work out a deal oh you want to you want to shed salary oh you'd be willing to take on salary if if you got a first round pick you know GMs kind of, they figure out the framework, then they they build specifics of a deal. Oh, you'd be willing to move, you know, just for the name that I have to say, Kevin Love. Okay, what would a Kevin Love trade look like on your end? Okay, thanks, I'll, we'll consider it. You know, these, these, these conversations are happening right now, but I still don't think December 15th is when that happens. I think a trade is coming in season. I think that's inevitable for this team the, the, and the way that Neil O'Shea operates. He's going to be aggressive in the trade market to try to upgrade this team or at least move some parts around. But I don't think it's early December. I think it's more to the first part of your question, Sir Weezy, probably around the trade deadline of February. So around Christmas, if they haven't made a move, don't get sad. One could still be coming for sure. Okay, next question comes from KJM underscore B-Ball at B-BallKJM on Twitter. And KJM asks... Is Robert Covington the perfect fix-all for Portland's defense, and what would it take for the Trailblazers to acquire him? I like this question because it is specific. A lot of people ask trade questions, and they say, are the Blazers going to make a trade? Can you name seven targets in the league? Um, and I usually ignore those guys because I don't, I'm, I'm not your trade machine. You can, you got, y'all got trade machine? Hook it up. KJM underscore B-Ball, already on trade machine. Making real trades, getting specific targets. I really like Robert Covington. I think he's really good. I think he's a really, really good defensive player. I think he play. I think he can play three or four. I think he can guard basically one through four. He's he's an elite defender and a, and a, a three and D specialist. But I also know this: Robert Covington is one of Carl Anthony Towns' closest friends on the Timberwolves, which means that the T Wolves trying to appease Towns and hope that he doesn't bail because he's really good and they are probably unlikely to get someone of his caliber. One of the 10 or 15 best players in the NBA, they're going to try to hold on to his buddies unless it's a super, super upgrade. And I don't think the Blazers are sending out CJ McCollum in exchange for Robert Covington. Seems unlikely. To your other point, Covington would be a huge upgrade on the wing for the Blazers. I think that is a massive, massive thing. But what I think they're really missing 
and I don't mean to just like turn this podcast into me being mean to Hassan Whiteside, but they're missing the mobility and aggressive defense of a big man. They're missing someone who you can funnel guys to and he really will soak up and, and clean up for things on defense. Nurk wasn't a shot blocker like Whiteside supposedly is, but he was really good at just being big in the middle and deterring guys from attacking. And I think that's what they're missing. Uh, the, the sort of Zach Collinsy role of a mobile seven-footer who can also defend the rim. Covington would be a huge upgrade on defense, but fix all I think is too far, KJM. Okay, our next question comes from Jaron Abelson. Jaron asks, how much do you think tax concerns played into the team not making an offer to Alfred Camus? Collins would have started over him regardless, and a two-year $20 million deal with a second-year non-guaranteed provides insurance and valuable mid-sized salary for trades which they lack. Uh, Jaron also notes in a follow-up tweet, it's a delta of about $10 million for a veteran minimum guy for, for all that flexibility. I think there's a couple things wrong with your logic, although I do think you hit the nail on the head in the first part. So let's start picking apart your logic, and then we'll go back to the part that you absolutely nailed. One, Al Farouk Aminu wasn't taking a two-year $20 million deal with a non-guaranteed second year. He's too old for that garbage. He got $27 million in the open market. Let's assume that he that's the deal that he was going to go get. Pretending that there was this separate market where the Blazers could have convinced him to take a, a significantly worse deal that increased their flexibility, I think is, I think is incorrect. I think it's unfair to, to the market. What really played out is he got close to $30 million over three years. That's the market. That's for Al Aminu. So that might cut down this flexibility idea. The other thing is, Collins would have started over him regardless. Let me say this. I don't think so. I kind of think one of the reasons that Neil Olshay stacked the deck so Zach Collins had to start at power forward is because if he gave Terry Stotts any other options, Terry Stotts might have gone another way. Not that he disliked Zach Collins, but he really trusted Al Farouk Really, really, really trusted him. And if Al Farouk was here, he might have played him over Zach. In fact... Zach might have ended up playing more center as a backup to Hassan Whiteside and not any power forward. And I think that played into some of the decision-making with Aminu. But the thing I think you got mostly correct, 100% correct here, is the tax concerns. I think the Blazers were hoping Alfred Aminu wouldn't get that kind of money and were assuming that they could get him back for that 5-7 to seven range. And when he got $9 million... My conspiracy theory is now that that was just too rich for their blood because the signals they were sending heading into the offseason is that Rodney Hood was going to be gone. They were going to try to bring back Ennis Cantor because they felt like they needed a starting center. And then once they got Cantor back in the fold, then it was Aminu was going to be their, maybe not their target, but someone that they could certainly bring back easiest. They had his bird rights. They could have paid him. It didn't matter. And they made the choice of basically... Al Farouk Aminu or nothing. They didn't choose Pau Gasol over him. They could have filled up the roster. They still have an empty roster spot. They chose nothing over Al Farouk Aminu. And the, they use the word flexibility, but I think more accurately they use the word cheapness. They're the most expensive payroll in the league. And while we have indications that Jody Allen was willing to spend money in the past to trade for or sign Ennis Cantor and trade for Rodney Hood, both of which increased the tax bill, we don't have a lot of other data that says she's willing to pay whatever it takes, capital W, in the sort of Paul Allen mold. So my conspiracy theory is that you're correct, Jaron, is that this was a tax thing, a tax concern is why they let Aminu go, and that they did sacrifice some real flexibility in order to be cheaper. 
Okay, the next question comes from Paint and PDX. Paint and PDX starts by buttering me up, which is a great strategy. Just kidding, everyone's question got on here, even though they didn't butter me up. But Paint and PDX still went for it. They ask, lots of, or they say, lots of good white side takes on your recent pods. Thank you. So that's where I'm going to go this week. For the sake of argument, let's say the Blazers are playing at roughly 500 level, and white side is good white side for about 50% of the time. Hypothetically, if Whiteside was able to be good or peak effort Whiteside more like 75 or 90% of the time, how much improved are the Blazers as a team? Okay, there's a lot of percentages in there. It's a little bit confusing, but I think what you're saying is this. Right now, Hassan Whiteside plays hard about half the time. The Blazers win about half their games. If Whiteside were to play, say, 90% of the time, three-quarters of his time at his best, where would the Blazers be? I think they'd be better. Let's say they're four and six now. I think the difference in Whiteside playing a little bit harder is probably a guaranteed win over a terrible Warriors team because his play could have set the tone. So that moves them to five and five, and we'll just say they steal one other win in there and go six and four. Blazers season feels a lot better if they're six and four. But to your general sort of larger point, Hassan Whiteside playing hard and with focus is going to be the difference in the Blazers being kind of mediocre and very competitive each and every night. He is a huge linchpin for him, and they just don't have better options. As good as Scal has been, he has real limitations too, particularly on the backboards. So it's got to be Hassan, and they need him to be at his best. Peak Whiteside, as you say. All right, in the third segment, we're going to close this out with answering more of your questions. But before we get there, I want to tell you guys about Audible. Audible has the world's largest selection of audiobooks and audio entertainment. Start listening with a 30-day Audible trial. Choose one audiobook and two Audible originals absolutely free. To get this deal, just visit audible.com slash locked on MBA. That's audible.com slash locked on MBA. All right, still locked on Blazers, still Mike Richmond, still pass first point guard, and we're still doing Monday mailbags. That means your questions all episode long, and I'm answering them. This next one comes from Rip Village at Rip Village on Twitter, who asks, is there an, any onus on Damian Lillard to change the way he runs the team based on personnel? CJ. I assume that means same question for CJ. I think this is a really interesting question. I actually reached out to Rip Village asking them to follow up on what this might look like. Because I'm, I'm super curious. I think um, when the team changes as dramatically as it did, you kind of say, hey, you're the best player on the team. Can you? What can you do to make the other guys fit in. You There's also the other uh, school of thought that says, you're the best player on the team, just do what you do and have the other guys fall in line, which I think is more where the Blazers tend toward. But in general, I don't think there's much onus on Damon Lillard to change the way he plays. I think one of his real strengths is that he reads the game really well. And by that, I mean, early on, he kind of figures out probes, where the defense is going to be soft, where they're going to rotate to him, how they're going to guard him. And he won't necessarily always come out firing and, and try to put up big numbers early. He'll get guys going, make sure everybody else is in a rhythm. And then if the game is still in doubt, which it has been a bunch to start this season, he'll really go nuts in the second half. We've seen him do that early in the season. We've also seen him go nuts the whole game like he did the other night when he dropped 60 in a loss. So I don't know if there's an onus on him. I think he... Um, I think he does a really nice job of it. CJ, I just have a hard time imagining CJ changing up what he does. You'd like to see him maybe move the ball a little bit faster, particularly when they have this sort of super small ball uh, perimeter-oriented attack. I think there's a couple times last game when he could have made one extra pass and let someone attack just with an advantage. But in general... 
maybe CJ could be a little more judicious with when he looks to attack and when he looks to dribble the ball 19 times and, and take someone uh, with his myriad moves. But I don't think that's that's that reasonable. Both of them could maybe cut a little harder off the ball. I don't think the Blazers do a very good job of when Dame and CJ do spend time off the ball, letting them do interesting things. I think mostly they spot up, and then after they spot up, they attack either on a quick pick and roll or just a straight line drive off of those things. So maybe they could specifically change just a little more ball movement when guys like Hazonia or, or Kent Bazemore is moving, taking the ball up the court. Next question comes from Brendan O'Donnell, who asks, What retired Blazer, in their prime, would you bring back to save this season? Also, because I know you love second questions, what restaurant should I take my wife to for our second anniversary? Congratulations, Brennan, to you and your wife. I'll answer that one first. I'm going to go, I, I thought about a couple things, but I'm going to go with Coquine in Southeast Portland. I think it's one of the best restaurants in the whole city. It's a delight. Hope you enjoy it. So who would I bring, which Blazer in their prime would I bring back to save the season? I assume this is going to be Blazer player who was on the Blazers in their prime, because if it's not, I'm going to say Scottie Pippen, right? Um, prime Scottie Pippen would dominate this era. He could play four or five. He could also guard threes. He would be, Prime Scottie Pippen would destroy this era. He would be so, 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 so good. But I'm going to assume he's off the table because he was not in his prime when he was a Blazer. So the two that come to mind are Bill Walton, an MVP caliber big man, and a guy who will bring it every night and be a defensive force, I think would save the season. And the other one, Rasheed Wallace. Stretchy big to play off Damon CJ, provides floor spacing, a really good defender, a really good rebounder when he really wanted to be. Uh, he played in an era of really good bigs, so maybe a little overshadowed by the KGs and Tim Duncan, Carl Malone types, but Sheed was awesome, and he would really help the Blazers. Save their season? Probably. We'll, we'll put it at probably. All right, this next question comes from Jason Reyes. At Jason underscore Reyes underscore on Twitter. They ask, do you think we would see some sort of team improvement if the role of any current players in the Blazers' rotation was tweaked. For example, running Mario at PG or Scal as a floor spacer. I like this idea. Take the guys already on the roster and put them in sort of different roles to, to change things up and maybe maximize their skill sets. I do not watch Mario Hazonia and think that he should have more time at point guard. I think he's creative in the open floor, but his lack of jump shooting and his occasional tunnel vision when he just decides, I'm going to try to score now, or I'm going to take this jump shot now, seems like he would be a problem. And moreover, less time when Damian Lillard and CJ have the ball in their hands means a, ba a worse player has the ball in their hands. Mario Hazonia is worse than those two dudes, significantly. So Mario Hazonia at PG, I don't love. Scal is a floor spacer. I assume you mean him playing like a stretch four next to Son Whiteside. I think this is intriguing. I'm a little bit worried that that team would get cooked perimeter defense on the perimeter defensively. But I'm willing to see it. The Blazers don't have a lot of good options to go big. This is basically their only option to have a truly big lineup out on the floor. I don't think it would imp improve the team, but it could be worth an experiment. Other specifics that I might try... I might try to go super big when Rodney's back and put him at the two for a little bit. And you play him at the two, Hazonia at the three, Tolliver at four, I guess, and Hassan Whiteside at five. Just just more size. That would, that would be something that might, that might tweak. Okay, Peyton PDX, back for their third question, asks, Bonus question. 
What is the best food and beverage option in the Moda Center? And what are the best jersey design and number combinations this season? Okay, I'm going to say the best jerseys are those throwback Blazers vertical uh, 1977 jerseys. Those are super fun. The best combo this season, I mean, zero is always a fun number, although I think every player in the NBA wears zero now, so it's less fun. So I'll pick a Zonia. I like I like the uh, Drazen Petrovic tribute that he rolls with. Um, you got to get it extra medium like he wears it too, but I think that's the best one. Your first question, I got to say I don't know the answer. I want to turn this over to you guys. When I go to the Moda Center, I eat the media meal. Uh, I haven't been to the Moda Center as a fan in a quite a long time. So I don't have a great grasp on that. I don't walk around the concourse and eat. I just go eat the media meal. So I want to ask you, tweet at me, and I will answer this on my next mailbag. What is the best food and beverage option in the Moda Center? At Mike G. Rich. Help paint PDX and I out and tell me what you eat and where to get it in the Moda Center crowdsourcing y'all okay final question this one came in right under the buzzer we were going to close out with Payton pdx question and i was going to turn it over to you but esoteric eric at esoteric underscore eric on twitter got this one in just before i hit that record button and they ask do you think cj openly talking about scouting the refs on his podcast has any effect on the lack of foul calls he accumulates when taken into the cup or is it just simply there isn't much con- contact listen the refs aren't listening to no CJ McCollum podcast. I don't even listen to no CJ McCollum podcast. I'm sure it's good. People like it. Uh, one time Kevin Durant was mean to him on it. That's the only time I've ever listened to it was that time that Kevin Durant was mean to CJ McCollum on the podcast. Um, no, I don't think that's like too conspiracy theory for me. I don't think it has anything to do with it. I think CJ's just bad at drawing fouls. I think he... His moves, his his game is a lot, is floater heavy. It's pull up heavy. It's avoiding contact. Um, he doesn't just put his head down and, and have that skill of drawing fouls. It's definitely a skill. He just he's just not good at it. But I do think it's interesting that he scouts the refs. Uh, I think that is an advantage that the sort of video era players of this generation have a real have a real advantage over their over their predecessors because they can watch. They can get their video guy to pull up every clip that Monty McCutcheon has called, every foul Monty McCutcheon has called, every game, and watch it and get those. Uh, and I'm sure the analytics departments in every team have numbers on on refs and stuff like that that their players can have access to. But no, I think that's a little too little too uh, tinfoil hat for me, esoteric Eric. I don't think the refs are listening to CJ's podcast, and I don't think if someone in their circle does that they're uh, applying that in game in live in a live setting saying like you know this dude was talking smack on the pull up podcast we are not giving him that good call tonight he's not getting that kind of whistle that's too crazy for me thank you so much for the questions everybody I sincerely appreciate it I want to do this every week we'll keep it rolling all season Monday mailbag look for me on Twitter at Mike G Rich on Monday I'll solicit the questions you ask them you get them answered right here and as always if you think of something during the week you don't have to wait till Monday just shoot it at me I'll save it I'm good at the internet I will put that question into my little word doc and I'll answer it right here in the podcast the other thing you can do as always is tell your friends about Lockdown Blazers chances are if they like hoops and they like the Blazers and you like this podcast they'll like it too You tell a friend, they'll tell a friend. We'll keep it going. Keep Monday Mailbag going. Blazers got a back-to-back coming up. Tuesday against the Kings and then Wednesday at home against the Raptors. I'll have more podcasts coming after each one. Appreciate you listening. Talk to you soon.